Well, hello everybody and uh, welcome to this Facebook Live conversation on crises in the post-Soviet region. I'm Matt Rajansky, director of the Kennan Institute at the Wilson Center. Uh, and I'm very pleased today to be able to hold this conversation with Dr. Igor Zavoyov, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. As you no doubt know, if you're tuning into this conversation, the last uh, half year, in addition to the worldwide COVID-19 crisis, has witnessed across the former Soviet space uh, and in Russia's uh, uh, neighboring regions from Europe to Central Asia, a number of significant political and security crises in addition to the public health crisis, uh, whether that's uh, the popular uprising following the elections in Belarus, uh, leadership changes in violence in Kyrgyzstan, and of course, uh, quite bloody, quite significant uh, upsurge in the fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the three decade long conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh, which for the moment seems to be uh, simmering, but uh, may not in fact be over. So the conversation today is gonna to try to look at these conflicts from Russia's perspective. Uh, what are Russia's interests? What's Russia's approach? Why has Russia been in varying degrees more and less engaged? And I truly can't think of uh, anyone uh, more insightful and uh, I think up to the minute in terms of analysis than Igor Zavoyov to talk to us about that. In fact, Igor has a brand new Canon cable, which is our longer format uh, but still general audience publication, which you can find on the Canon Institute website. Uh, there'll be a link to it in the Facebook chat my colleagues are posting now. Uh, so take a look at that publication. I may in fact read out some quotes from it uh, to help prompt our conversation along. I also want to encourage you while I'm at it uh, to join in with your own questions uh, via Facebook. Uh, you can also email them to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. Uh, and please include your name and affiliation when you are sending in questions. Uh, finally, for more uh, content that's already been recorded, you can listen to anytime. Uh, check out our podcasts, Kenan X and The Russia File, uh, which are available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, everybody, everywhere else, as well as a link from our website. So without further ado, let me introduce Igor. Uh, he is a global fellow at the Kenan Institute. Uh, this is, in fact, his third fellowship with Kennan. He was a George F. Kennan Fellow uh, in 2019 and 20 and a short-term scholar in 1994. His current research is in the fields of national identity, discourse, nationalism, Russia's foreign policy towards neighboring states, and Russian-American relations. From 2017 to 2019, he was a professor of national security studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies. And in 2017, he taught at Johns Hopkins SICE. He's also been a visiting professor at the Universities of Washington, University of California, Berkeley, and McAllister College. And from 2008 to 2016, was director of the Russia office of the MacArthur Foundation. He has published five books and his PhD in political science is from the Institute of International Relations and World Economy in Moscow. So Igor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Um, well, this, this conversation can go in a number of different directions, but as I promised, um, while we have questions coming in from the audience and, and we'll, we can go up to an hour and we go a little bit less than that, I want to start with a few of my own and I want to begin kind of with the conceptual framing, right? So uh, in your piece, uh, Russia and the Changing Post-Soviet Space, which I, I commend to everybody, you know, you talk um, almost implicitly about the Russian goal of being a kind of guarantor and arbiter. Uh, but always somehow being involved in the post-Soviet space. If you start from the premise that, you know, there are 15 independent countries in the space that used to be 
the former Soviet Union rather than the premise of kind of there's Russia and Russia's neighborhood, which is obviously two very different worldviews. The, the question naturally arises, why? Why does the Kremlin have to play this special role? Why does it have to be a regional guarantor? Why does it have to have its fingers in everything? And, and, I, and let me put an even finer point on that uh, before I, I let you respond, uh, which is, is it even good for Russia to always have that expectation and that obligation? Well, when we talk about Russia, it's very often about status and identity. Status is similar to prestige. People and states want uh, uh, to feel good about themselves and they seek uh, status, uh, which may be described as recognized identity. And Russian identity is great power and successor of uh, the former Soviet Union. So, but if you just repeat it a thousand times a day, uh, nobody will believe you unless you act as a great power and confirm this state, uh, this identity, and it is recognized as uh, your status. So it's about status, uh, uh, recognized uh, identity, and identity itself. Uh, Russia, unlike other successor states of the former Soviet Union, feels more connection to the Soviet Union. The Russian Socialist Federative Republic as a constituent part of the Soviet Union was not actually separated from the all union center. It doesn't have a separate capital. Moscow played the role uh, as both Russian capital and Soviet capital. It didn't have major institutions like the Communist Party of the Russian uh, Republic was created shortly before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet center merged with uh, Russia. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, that was a deep identity crisis. And uh, most Russians had very difficult time to recognize other successor states as true states, as independent states. Uh, uh, but now, of course, we live in a different world and 30 years have passed uh, after the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union. And a younger generation of Russians feel, uh, feels and thinks very differently. And they raise these questions, why should we do that? We have a lot of problems uh, at home. So the Kremlin plays uh, this delicate, uh, tries to find this delicate balance between uh, being a great power and success of the former Soviet on the one hand, but uh, to play as a nation state, as a true nation state, which is not uh, the former Soviet Union on the other hand. So, and the recent crisis uh, in many parts of the former Soviet Union close to Russia just showed how uh, difficult this game is for the Kremlin and for the Russian public. Let's, let's drill down if we can a little bit on this question of national interest. Um, it seems ironic to me that especially in, in the Putin years, uh, post-Soviet Russia has been described 
interestingly not, you know, well, look, I guess it's fair to say it's been described in, in a great many ways. Some people talk about an obsession with recreating Russian empire, recreating the Soviet Union. But then on the other hand, uh, Putin's foreign policy, uh, you know, often, for example, citing uh, Primakov, the ideas of multipolarity, very much of a realist worldview, seems to be uh, ultimately premised on national interest. And, and where I see these two concepts coming into collision most often very much is the former Soviet space. When Russians ask the question, what is our national interest in this region? It seems to me that, that to say, well, we've always been there and it's always been important isn't really a sufficient answer as to why that's in uh, Russia's national interest. Is there a compelling argument that convinces Russians today that isn't just about, well, we used to be there, this used to be Soviet, or it used to be the Russian Empire? Well, uh, of course, there are new reasons why Russia should play a special role on the territory of the former Soviet Union. Uh, at least these reasons are propagated by uh, the Kremlin. Many Russians are convinced, uh, while many Russians uh, do not believe that. Uh, and this is about the role of the West. Uh, and from the Kremlin perspective, if we do not play a special role in the post-Soviet space, the West will fill the vacuum. And the West not only as, uh, as a power that brings new technology, new norms, new values, but also power bringing NATO closer to Russian borders, uh, bringing uh, military presence, uh, first on rotational basis and then on permanent basis, like uh, it's going on in Poland right now. And in the Kremlin uh, world, if uh, not we, then the West, and that will be the end of Russia because the West is not only the military power, but power that would like to change Russian identity to something very different, to make Russians like uh, the Westerners, or at least the Kremlin says that. Once again, not all the Russians are convinced that this is true, but many Russians believe that. So, so that's interesting because it, it um, anticipates one possible um, you know, counterexample, which would be if you look, for example, at the South Caucasus, especially within the last month, uh, or if you look at Central Asia over the last five to 10 years, you do see the encroachment of other powers in a zero-sum way, right? I mean, if Turkey becomes Azerbaijan's main patron, then it can no longer be Moscow. If China becomes the main trading partner of, you know, pick your Central Asian Republic, or maybe of all, all five of them, then it can no longer be Moscow. Uh, and yet these encroachments don't seem to raise anything like the same concern that you just described of a vacuum allowing NATO, allowing America to come in. Are, it, it, what is the issue? Is it, is it uh, this deep, you, you touched on, I think it's a fascinating question, this, this impression that somehow what the West wants to do is change Russia's identity and maybe Chinese don't care as much or Turks don't care as much about that. I mean, why is it seen differently? 
Well, indeed, if you look at Central Asia or South Caucasus, uh, you see that Turkey is in, uh, France and the United States uh, are out. Uh, if you look in uh, Central Asia, yes, China is in, the United States practically is absent. Uh, the EU tries to do something, but actually very little. The main competitor is China. And in, in, uh, speaking uh, in economic terms, uh, China is the leading power in uh, Central Asia, while Russia remains uh, an important player in the uh, area of security. But why Russia is concerned mostly uh, about the West? Because yes, the West can, wants and can change Russian identity. It has a very powerful and promising ally within Russia. And this is constituency that wants political change in Russia, that wants to see political scene being more competitive, that wants respect for human rights. And from the Kremlin perspective, the West allies with these constituencies and that it is such a dangerous power, unlike Turkey or China, who do not care what is going on within Russia, who do not care about the nature of the political regime in Moscow, or about human rights. So these are absolutely different uh, competitors for Russia, China and Turkey on one hand and the West on the other. Let me, China uh, poses a very important example, I think, in the different measures of power and influence. Um, when I talk to Chinese counterparts, whether they're experts or even government officials, the line is very consistent. You know, I'm always asking about Chinese and Russian influence in, in, in Central Asia, and I'm always getting the answer from Chinese, well, we respect that Russia is the traditional political and security power in that region. Um, and yet everybody knows, as you said, that China's economy is, is dominant, that you know, if, you, if you want a trading partner, it's, it's China. Um, was there was there ever a pathway for Russia that that looked different? And what I'm thinking about in particular is soft power, right? So Russia does produce some things that people want, mainly nat natural resources, but it also produces kind of cultural outputs that are very popular, uh, in, at least in the Russian-speaking world. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, for example, Russian education and the Russian language is a, a kind of a lingua franca across the entire region. Was there ever a pathway, was there ever a time when the Kremlin said, the way that we can win friends and influence in our neighborhood is soft power and not hard power? Soft power has been often confused with propaganda in Russia. Uh, at the same time, uh, there have been positive changes in uh, the leadership of Rossotrudnichstva uh, it's taking a different approach now under the leadership of Evgeny Primakov, uh, the grandson of uh, Evgeny Primakov. Uh, there is a new approach. But the main thing is that soft power is about attractiveness of the country. And very often uh, a country is attractive without much governmental effort. 
uh, it is attractive because its uh, economy, political system, uh, lifestyle, cultural culture are popular and appeal to foreign audiences. And Russia remains attractive in the post-Soviet space, not because of, but probably in spite of the governmental efforts. Uh, Russia is number four in the world in terms of num number of migrants coming uh, to Russia to work after the United States, uh, Germany, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so millions of people uh, see Russia as a place where employment opportunities are. Also, uh, educational opportunities, even medical care. While Russians uh, all the time complain uh, with good reason about their medical care, but many people from Central Asia prefer to go to Russia to get treatment. Uh, to get treatment. And so on and so forth. Uh, the role of the Russian language. There were many predictions in the early 90s that it will fade away. But uh, I traveled recently throughout Central Asia and South Caucasus. Uh, and uh, Russian remains uh, the language of international communication uh, throughout those regions. So uh, Russia has a lot of uh, soft power instruments, but it has not learned how to use them uh, properly. Let's, uh, I'm going to ask you an unfair question, which is, on a spectrum, can you uh, place for me the, the, the countries and, and areas of greatest, most intense interest for Russians in the post-Soviet space and, and those of the least interest? And it's, it's an unfair question, but uh, are you willing to try? <laughs> of course, Ukraine and Belarus, they are the most important uh, countries uh, for Russians. There is no question about that. And then, so presumably, uh, presumably you, would, you would put what, uh, the Caucasus, Central Asia, even, for example, the Baltic region, which is now in the EU and NATO, where would you put them on the spectrum? Oh, uh, well, uh, huh. it's a difficult question because uh, it, there are many different perspectives in Russia on any single issue. And if you ask a thousand people, uh, you will get probably 999 uh, different answers. And uh, the Baltic states in Raj Russian imagination have been always different. Even when the Soviet Union uh, was there, uh, the three Baltic republics were perceived as uh, something different from the rest of the country. So Russians like uh, those who can afford that, uh, spend vacations there, to travel there, to have property there, even to get citizenship there if possible. Uh, but uh, the Baltic countries are gone. It is not a constituent part of the post-Soviet space understood by most Russians and understood by the Kremlin. These three countries are members of the EU and NATO. Uh, 
And if these two institutions are taken seriously anywhere in the world, it's first of all in Moscow. So they are, of course, gone. Uh, South Caucasus has become popular also as vacation destination for Russia. And look at Georgia, in spite of all the difficulties in uh, interstate relations, it's a very attractive place to go and spend vacations and spend money and so on and so forth. Central Asia is not yet there, but it may become. I saw many Russian tourists coming to Bukhara and Samarkand. Uh, uh, these are the places that also uh, attract Russians. But this is, I'm talking about popular perceptions. From the governmental point of view, of course, Ukraine and Belarus are the most important countries geopolitically, uh, geopolitically and from the perspective of security and also uh, their important economic partners. Uh, South Caucasus is a difficult region uh, Russia would like to play a role as security provider, but it is expensive and difficult. But nowadays we see Russian military presence in all three states of South Caucasus. Uh, there is a Russian uh, military base uh, in Armenia. Uh, of course, there is Russian military presence in Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia. Uh, which are within international recognized borders of Georgia. And now we see the deployment of Russian peacekeepers on the territory of Azerbaijan, namely Nagorno Karabakh. Uh, so uh, when most Russian uh, when think of South Caucasus, this is a vacation destination. When policymakers think of South Caucasus, it's all about security, military presence, uh, challenges. Central Asia is a region uh, perceived by uh, the Kremlin probably mostly in security terms. Afghanistan is uh, nearby. And of course, the US troops withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, is a great concern for the Kremlin in spite of the official propaganda uh, that says uh, actually, sooner the Americans are out uh, is better. Not true, uh, because uh, security vacuum may uh, be filled by the forces that Russia is sincerely afraid of. So uh, it's primarily Central Asia is a region of uh, security challenges and uh, competition with China for influence. Interestingly, Igor, um, you have talked mostly about the kinds of national interests, security, uh, economic, uh, travel, uh, and diplomacy that would be fairly universal to any country. I mean, uh, the United States has such interests, Australia has such interests, Finland has such interests, but you yourself uh, have written in your in your research during your Canon Fellowship about uh, the issue of kind of citizenship and you know Russians abroad, and uh, you have this line in the paper that we've just published today, talking about how uh, the Russian kind of uh, mental narrative 
creates a much larger map of what Russia really is uh, and, and exceeds Russia's current political boundaries. Now, I think I, think I understand this not to be neo-imperial uh, so much as it is kind of ethno-national. It's reaching out to uh, what it imagines to be kind of Russians or, or uh, bearers of, uh, you know, uh, or something like that, bearers of Russian civilization. Um, my question then would be, and you and I were chatting about this briefly before we went live, um, who defines that space? Is it Putin? Uh, is it Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who famously was very precise? He says it's Ukraine, Belarus, and Northern Kazakhstan, plus Russia. Um, do you have a definition of that? And some people, maybe jokingly, maybe not, have said, well, it should also include, you know, Brighton Beach, right? Or some neighborhoods in Berlin, which are absolutely, I mean, you just hear Russian uh, or, you know, the, the uh, south part of Tel Aviv, you know, I mean, there are places, absolutely, which are just uh, completely Russian speaking in the world. Um, how do you, how do you grapple with this idea that there is, that, that Russia is special in, in, in having kind of a Ruski mir that goes far beyond its borders? Well, a similar question President Putin asked a nine-year uh, boy at uh, the geography competition four years ago. And he asked him uh, where Russia's borders uh, ended. Uh, and the boy replied at the Bering Strait. And uh, Putin provided his own answer. He said, uh, Russia's borders, uh, a Russian border doesn't end anywhere. So, and after that, there were a lot of billboards in Russia along the roads uh, with this phrase, uh, Russia's borders doesn't end anywhere. Later on, Putin had to clarify that that was a joke. Uh, but there is a joke in every joke, uh, but there is also some <laughs> grain of truth in uh, uh, every joke. There is a saying in Russia that uh, Russians is not a nation, it's a state of mind. So uh, there are different perspectives on uh, what uh, are true or correct or real Russian borders, mental maps are different. You mentioned Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the founding father of ethnic nationalism in Russia. From my perspective, we can call him as that. And he argued that it was a good thing that the Soviet Union collapsed. The bad thing was that it had collapsed along the wrong borders drawn by the Bolsheviks. And the quote unquote correct borders for him would be borders reflecting ethnic composition of the population. And he argued that the Russian borders uh, would include Belarus, most of Ukraine, Northern Kazakhstan, which he called as Southern Siberia, uh, Northeastern part of Estonia, but most of Chechnya, at least its uh, mountain uh, region, uh, 
is not a part of true Russia. Uh, it should not be a, a subject of the Russian Federation, but probably an independent uh, state. So this is one vision, ethnic nationalist vision. Uh, Zyuganov, uh, of course, had a very different uh, mental- the, the head of the Communist Party of modern Russia. Sorry? The head of modern Russia's Communist Party, I'm just pointing no, out. No, no, Liberal Democratic Party, Zhirinovsky. Oh, I said Zyuganov, I'm sorry. You said Zyuganov. Oh, I see, okay. Zyuganov is a leader of the Communist Party of Russian Federation. Well, his mental map is, uh, reflects his Soviet nostalgia. That is probably the Soviet border, uh, but it doesn't reflect the feelings of most of Russians. Of course, uh, flamboyant uh, leader of Liberal Democratic Party, Mr. Zhirinovsky, had a different map, and at some point it was uh, even a part uh, of the uh, symbol of uh, uh, his party that included Poland and Alaska as parts uh, of Russia. Uh, well, the foundation Ruski Mir, the Russian world, uh, according uh, to its leaders, uh, Russia is where people think in Russian. So very different mental maps and uh, sometimes they clash. Uh, this perception of the world, including political boundaries in the former Soviet Union reflect the ongoing process of uh, formation of a new nation state uh, in Russia. And this process is not complete yet. And the borders in the territory of the former Soviet Union are changing as we speak. At least uh, there are a lot of de facto changes, if not de jure. And if you look at most of political of political maps, they do not reflect reality in the post-Soviet uh, space. Uh, political control and formal uh, membership uh, in this or that political body do not coincide in cases of some sub-regions in the post-Soviet space. Let's, Igor, let's, uh, I, I want to bring in some audience questions. We have some very good ones. Um, and let's turn, if we can, to some of the specific uh, crises and developments that you talk about in your paper. Um, first, Karabakh. Um, uh, Aram Avitisian from Voice of America asks whether the outcome of the recent war and Russia's involvement reflects a strengthening or weakening of Russia's position in the South Caucasus. And, and what do you see as Russia's main goals with respect to the, the current Karabakh settlement? Well, when the war between uh, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh broke out, the Kremlin found itself in a very difficult position. Uh, it put the Kremlin between a rock and a hot place. Uh, for Putin, a choice was between two bad options. He would be damned if he had interfered supporting Armenia directly militarily and damned if he had not 
because uh, Russia was obliged to defend Armenia in case of aggression. So uh, it took Putin more than a week to comment on the outbreak of the war and his words were underwhelming for most Armenians. And he said, it is deeply regrettable what is going on right now and people are being killed, but there is no attack on uh, the territory of Armenia. Russia never recognized Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Armenia or independent entity. And by the way, no country in the world, including Armenia, recognized it as that. So uh, Russia always recognized um, that region as part of Azerbaijan. So from legal perspective and from geopolitical perspective, uh, Putin's position was impeccable. Uh, there was no attack on the territory of Armenia proper. So uh, Russia did not have a reason to interfere militarily directly. And of course the Kremlin didn't want it and that it would not have been supported by the Russian population. At the same time, a powerful uh, Armenian diaspora all over the world, including in Russia, and there are about 2 million uh, ethnic Armenians living in Russia. And by the way, to about 2 million ethnic Azerbaijanis living in uh, Russia. Uh, that made uh, the situation uh, very difficult uh, for the Kremlin. Uh, just three days ago, November 17th, if I'm not mistaken, an interview of President Putin uh, was uh, published. Uh, it's one of the most interesting Putin's interviews ever because it showed a real process of decision-making and dramatic events and direct line between Putin and President Aliyev and Prime Minister Pashinyan and uh, how difficult it was to reach the agreement. So overall, my personal estimate uh, that the Kremlin played the weak hand well. Uh, it played as uh, a peace broker. Uh, finally, uh, the hostility was put to the end, and this is the most important thing. Of course, many people in Armenia view the agreement uh, as something cementing uh, Azerbaijani military gain. Uh, this agreement also opened the door, if not for direct military presence of Turkey in Azerbaijan, but at least as a power that would be a part of monitoring group uh, of the uh, agreement. So it's just the beginning of the process, uh, but after some hesitation, Russia is back as a very important uh, player in the region. And we started our conversation with discussion of status and identity. So from this perspective, it's a good outcome for Russia, uh, but it's a very volatile uh, region. We do not know how things will develop. Uh, so far, the war has been stopped. For how long, we still do not know. The jury is out. 
Igor, uh, I want to get in uh, as many more of the audience questions as I can, but I have to ask you, since I said we'd, we'd look at some of the specific issues more closely, do you see so far uh, a parallel between the Russian and Western reactions to the crisis in Belarus and what has happened in Ukraine over the last six years? Or is it different? Uh, Russian and Western perception of what is going on in Belarus as compared to yeah so 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 what I'm asking is Ukraine very clearly went from I mean I was there when it began as very much of a domestic political change or crisis and it turned quickly into geopolitical in no small part because of Russia's military intervention uh, without an explicit military intervention, do you see Belarus developing on the same lines that it's that it's becoming more geopolitical, or do you think it will remain largely a kind of domestic change in Belarus? And, and since you mentioned Armenia, that that's a good example, right, where you had basically a kind of revolution in Armenia, which did not become geopolitical. Yeah, it, it it's a great question. Uh... Well, of course, the developments in Belarus are somewhat similar, but at the same time, very different from what took place in uh, Ukraine uh, six years ago. Uh, yes, indeed, in Belarus, uh, it remains a domestic issue. It's not a geopolitical issue. Uh, the most dangerous thing that could happen to European security and probably even Euro-Atlantic security is that uh, the situation when Belarus is a battle between Russia and the West. Of course, this scenario is far-fetched, but you know, this remote danger was so frightening for all parts involved uh, that nobody actually wanted it, and it has not happened. At the same time, the onslaught of the Belarusian, uh, Belarusian uh, opposition is a matter of concern uh, to many people all over the world, including to civil society uh, within Russia. The Kremlin uh, perceived the situation in Belarus, of course, uh, not only in terms of domestic politics in Belarus, uh, but also from geopolitical perspective. Uh, as I said earlier, the Kremlin is very much concerned about the Western NATO uh, military presence uh, close to Russian borders or to that uh, matter to Belarusian borders as well. And uh, this conversion of rotationary deployed US troops in Poland to permanent military presence is a great concern for Russia and the specter, though doesn't matter how remote was that, of losing uh, Belarus in terms of a military ally would be a nightmare scenario for Russia. So after a brief period of hesitation, uh, the Kremlin decided uh, to support Mr. Lukashenko. Uh, it was very tragic to the Belarusian opposition that you, of course, uh, uh, the, the Kremlin as an ally of a brutal dictatorship in uh, Belarus now, 
But at the same time, there, uh, we must remember that uh, there is no much love lost between the Kremlin and Mr. Uh, Lukashenko. Ideally, the ideal world, the Kremlin would prefer some sort of a managed transition in Belarus to a leader that would be more comfortable partner for uh, the Kremlin. Uh, but so far, uh, uh, the uh, bad scenario for Russia would be seeing a leader toppled uh, by the mass protest uh, on the streets of Minsk. And this is something that the Kremlin would look at being horrified that the same scenario may unfold in Moscow. And uh, the Kremlin thinks that it simply cannot afford that to happen. We have a couple of questions that I think in a way are related, but if you want to separate them, go ahead. I want to ask them both. So, um, you know, Jill Doherty is asking whether there's a common element in the conflicts across the, the former Soviet region. And then George Kroll has just asked, whether Russians uh, recognize or accept that people in Belarus and Ukraine, uh, especially the post-Soviet generation, now view themselves as, as different from Russians and independent? Um, and is there a generational divide on how uh, Russia uh, views itself, uh, on how Russians view this issue versus the, the Soviet and the post-Soviet generations? And so I guess what the way I would suggest uh, addressing that, if you're willing, is kind of generalize it, not just Ukraine and Belarus, but is, is there such a divide of sort of Soviet identity people and post-Soviet identity people across the region? And is that an important part of what's happening right now? Absolutely. Uh, there is a generational uh, divide in Russia and in all post-Soviet uh, states and their perceptions are different. Uh, of course, for the younger generation, uh, this Soviet nostalgia uh, is something uh, unknown. Uh, I think that uh, what is important here is that the Kremlin doesn't see the citizens of the post-Soviet space, whatever generation they belong to, as independent economic, social, or political actors whose opinions and attitudes matter. The Kremlin feels more comfortable to deal with the post-Soviet leaders, to get together no matter how difficult partners they are and reach an agreement. Something uh, the Kremlin does with uh, Mr. Lukashenko. And on a broader scale, from this perspective, say uh, President Erdogan is very difficult partner, but is a partner you can get to together and reshit vapros and uh, come to some conclusion. And as the Kremlin doesn't see the citizens of its own country as independent economic, social, and political actors, it doesn't see uh, citizens of neighboring countries as such actors. And this is a great limitation for Russia, for the Kremlin's understanding 
what is going on in the neighboring countries. It looks like many events, uh, at least uh, in Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, and even the outcome of presidential election in Moldova came as a surprise uh, for the Kremlin because it is not prepared to accept this independent action by the citizens of the neighboring states. When, when an election like that happens, and here we have a question from uh, the Kennan Institute's own Morgan Jacobs, uh, when, uh, when an election uh, happens and uh, you know, uh, the, the country changes or revolution happens uh, and it you know, sort of uh, leans more into a Western uh, center of gravity, um, and then you get these almost inevitable, right, sort of visits of uh, NATO troops. By the way, th those were happening, there were official Ministry of Defense exchanges with NATO happening in Belarus, by the way, already uh, over the last several years. Um, how concerned is, is Russia by these things? Uh, it, uh, Morgan is asking specifically about the, the Black Sea region where Romania, Ukraine, and Georgia, uh, Georgia are really pushing uh, a kind of NATO presence uh, and then there's a related question also from Celestine Boland, who's asking when these elections happen and you see a change uh, to kind of more pro-Western leadership like Moldova recently or even Armenia a couple of years ago, does the Kremlin change its tone in response? Uh, does the Kremlin become kind of more pragmatic or more arm's length in its relations or does it still expect the same, as you say, you know, kind of uh, discussion to Rishitva Prose, right? Like kind of very traditional style of doing business with these very non, very new leaders, very different leaders. Well, maybe it's two questions. Sure. Uh, first of all, the Black Sea region and the Baltic Sea region uh, are the regions uh, we should uh, follow and uh, look at very closely. And there are very uh, troublesome events actually are going on. Uh, I'm talking about the incidents uh, in the sea, in the air, uh, over the Black Sea, over the Baltic Sea, these encounters between the air forces and the Navy uh, of NATO on the one hand and Russia on the other hand. And of course, when the Kremlin looks at the post-Soviet space, uh, it views it as a battle, as I said earlier, between Russia and the Western countries for power and influence. But these are not abstract categories when the Russian military planners see the military infrastructure of NATO coming closer to the Russian borders. And that is why any election or any unrest in the neighboring countries in Russia are viewed not as only political developments, domestic political developments in these countries, but as potentially geopolitical developments. And that's why Russian policy towards Belarus was actually aimed at preventing domestic political developments turning into geopolitical developments. And so far, the Kremlin has been successful in that. But of course, the West also showed a lot of restraint, understanding that 
Belarus is something uh, the Kremlin was ready to fight for if uh, there was a prospect of Belarus becoming, uh, well, not pro-Russian. Uh, so uh, a very interesting part of the question about the Kremlin policy becoming more pragmatic or not. There is enough evidence to believe that it's becoming more pragmatic. Uh, its behavior towards uh, the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, its attitude uh, towards uh, Moldova so far uh, have been uh, more pragmatic than ideologically driven. From my perspective, this short period of time from 2013 approximately to 2016, when ideology uh, played a very important role in uh, the Kremlin policies where with all the talk about civilization, historic identity, this unchanging and unchangeable Russia making its own independent journey through history from the times of uh, Grand Prince Vladimir to Vladimir Putin and so on. This period is over. Uh, Russia has tried to tone down its rhetoric about the Russian world, uh, receiving very strong messages from President Lukashenko, President Nazarbayev at that time, uh, that they didn't like this rhetoric at all. And uh, it is absent from the uh, official uh, vocabulary. It's a domain of Russian uh, nationalism only, uh, mostly, and uh, activities of cultural uh, establishing uh, establishment um, institutions like uh, uh, the Russian World uh, Fund, for example. So we see some signs of the Kremlin uh, policies and the post-Soviet state uh, space becoming more pragmatic, uh, but we will see what happens next. Let me, Igor, I think we, we have really the perfect question to end on uh, from Chris Bort, uh, who's a former uh, national intelligence officer for, for Russia and I know follows these issues very closely. It's a great question. Um, you know, contemplate and, and give us, if you will, your kind of, um, you know, top list, if any lessons that have been learned in the Kremlin by the crises that we have talked about in uh, Belarus and Karabakh. We haven't talked quite as much uh, about Kyrgyzstan, uh, but more generally, uh, crises in the post-Soviet space. Uh, what lessons is the Kremlin taking away from these in, in the contemporary time frame? And thank you, Chris, for that great question. First of all, I think that Moscow understands that it has very limited ability to influence domestic political developments, even in those countries that are mostly dependent on Russia economically and in the area of security, like Belarus and Kyrgyzstan and Armenia. The Kremlin does not control and has very little influence on uh, domestic 
political scene. Uh, this is the first le uh, lesson I believe that they have drawn. Uh, the second is that uh, the Kremlin must rethink its instrument of influence. If there is serious analysis, and I'm not private to what is going on right now in the Kremlin, of course, uh, but if there is a sober, serious analysis of what is going on, the Kremlin must rethink its instruments of power in the post-Soviet space. And uh, if it is good analysis, I believe that the Kremlin must come to the conclusion that it must learn how to deal not only with strong leaders, but also with political opposition, with civil society, with diasporas, with all those non-traditional uh, actors in international relations. When we say international relations, we usually mean interstate relations, uh, but actually inter uh, true international relations, especially in the modern world, when there are numerous new independent actors, uh, like those I already mentioned, like opposition, civil society, but also big cities as independent actors, as uh, corporations and interests of businesses and so on and so forth. And Moscow uh, is not very good uh, at all that. So I hope that this is uh, another lesson uh, that Moscow uh, would learn. And finally, this is an unpredictable uh, place, the post-Soviet uh, space, and both Moscow and the West will face many surprises in the very near as well as in distant future and uh, both Moscow and the Western countries must learn how to deal with them. And the most important thing, uh, how to not allow those disturbances in, these, uh, in this part of the world to lead to a major confrontation between Russia and the West. I think those are really great takeaways, Igor, not only for the Russian side, but I would argue for the West and for everybody else. And uh, your final point about unpredictability is exactly why we will continue to follow this entire region as closely as we do. We will certainly uh, continue to feature your views, and we're very grateful uh, to you for sharing them and, and spending so much time with us. As I'm grateful to all of you who submitted questions, I apologize to those that I might not have uh, gotten to in our limited time. Uh, and uh, I wanna thank you once again for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next time, bye-bye. Thank you very much, bye-bye.